this episode, you meet Colonel Steph Eisen. Steph's got an interesting background. He grew up on a Connecticut farm for the most part, and his dad was a pilot in the Luftwaffe in World War II. That got Steph interested in flying to where he was actually flying while he was in high school. He went off to the academy and, and joined uh, our wonderful class and became, uh, uh, he was on the dean's list seven of eight times. He was one of the s- smarter cadets we had. He also, uh, his squadron was also the top academic squadron at the academy. So for those of you used to hearing all the Pink Panther stories, you're going to hear some opposite stories from Steph's group. Uh, upon graduation, he became a pilot, then an instructor pilot, a PhD, and eventually the dean of the Air War College. You guys are going to like hearing about Steph Eisen. Hey, there he is. Yep, I'm there. Can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear you just fine. Cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for doing this, Steph. I, I appreciate it. Um, I usually start these off by asking the kind of generic question of what message you have for the uh, incoming class, the current, that's the recent grads, and the old folks like us. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> could be could be multiple choice answers. Yeah, it could be. Um, what? Now say that again. I'll what, make what sure I got it right. Going through all the uh, entertainment did, and why? Why? You know, what what kind of message do you have for the folks that might be uh, thinking about going there or trying to figure out how to survive there, or the ones that just got out of there and what they're going to do going forward? Well, uh, as far as the kids that are thinking about going there, um, and I'm comparing it a little bit to the motivation that a lot of enlisted folks have to join the military, because uh, I was a base, I was a BMT commander a long time ago. And most enlisted joined because of the education benefits. Um, and, you know, that's part of going to the academy. It's a tremendous education. But on top of that, uh, if you're thinking about going to the academy, uh, you got to remember that there's, there's only two kinds of folks in the military. There's officers and there's non-commissioned officers. There's, and the difference between them is, is both of them get to lead. Only one of them gets the privilege to command. And so the academy, you should go to the academy with the intent of learning the skill set to go beyond just leadership and understand what it means to command, because that's the expectation. It's not the expectation to make general uh, or anything else like that. It's, it's the expectation that you will get, you'll get the leadership skills and you have the um, initiative and drive to accept the mantle and responsibilities of command and do it right. Yeah, uh, I think that's the that's the big issue for any incoming cadet. Besides the education. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So any yeah. education, it's <laughs> get get the other stuff. Uh, yeah. Academy. So so where do you drop? Do I still have you? Ju- you've just dropped out. Yeah. Where did where did you grow up? Uh, where did I grow up? Well, I grew up in. I was born in Canada. Okay. And. Uh, Long story short, my dad was a Luftwaffe pilot in World War II. And after the war, he started a long process of emigrating to the States. And uh, after the war, there were no immigration uh, quotas for the United States. But the, the company that was interested in hiring him had a subsidiary in Canada. So that's where the family ended up. And that's where I was born. And uh, so in about the early grammar school years is when we moved to Connecticut. 
a nice little country town out in the middle of nowhere, Connecticut. Believe it or not, back then it wasn't all that urbanized. <laughs> and I kind of grew up on a farm. Oh, cool. And I always okay. loved to fly. I always loved to fly because uh, my dad was, a, you know, he started out in gliders. And that's how I started out with him. You know, some dads go fishing with their sons. Some dads go hunting with their sons. Well, he and I went glider flying. So I was hooked on flying since I was a itty bitty kid. I, I got to uh, ask what what where did he serve in the in the war? What 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 did he fly? And where did he fly at? He flew. Uh, he well, he he was an amazing guy. He started, of course, he was Austrian. He's Austrian by birth, so okay. he was essentially drafted into the military. He started out in uh, Messerschmitts, and ended up uh, going on to Focke-Wulfs and ended up in the Junkers fifty-two, uh, the big trimotor. And the reason is is because he went from six foot flat to six foot five and a half in about three years. He had a, he had a tremendous growth spurt and he just got too big for the other airplanes. Wow. And he, he flew virtually the entire war on the Russian front, which is absolutely incredible because the casualty rates on the Russian front for the Luftwaffe were, were incredible. Yeah, um, that's something else. I, I am surprised that he, of the 26 pilots that were in his squadron at the beginning of the war, only two survived. Wow. Yeah. I bet, yeah, I'm sure he's got, he has some great stories for you. He did. He didn't talk about it a lot because think about it, you know, when we were what, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, what were we doing? We're going to school, chasing, you know, chasing girls and, yeah. and, and trying to drive fast cars. He was on the Russian front. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not exactly, good, not exactly a good place to, to spend those, those particular years of your life. And, and he, uh, he, wow. he learned a lot, learned a lot about leadership and learned a lot about how to, how to take care of each other because there wasn't a whole lot to, uh, wasn't a whole lot of resources out there and yet they all had to try to make it. So yeah, he could, he could fix anything. Uh, he could make a meal out of anything. Uh, he, he was, he, he was the ultimate prepper, I'd say. Oh yeah. <laughs> he, he was a prepper before prepping was cool. They, they they did the black uh, scorched earth policy in the Russian front, so yeah, they had to yeah. be real creative. Just get the yep. scrub. Wow! And so, um, in Canada, you said you were there for as a as a baby. Yeah, in Canada, I, I was born in Montreal, and and uh, about was well, about seven or eight years old. We moved to the states. Okay. And so, from the from the glider uh, soaring type stuff, your dad had you do is that kind of what drove you to the academy? Um, yeah, I, I love flying and I had an interesting conversation with my high school guidance counselor because, you know, he knew I wanted to get an engineering degree and a lot of my classmates were going to either MIT, Worcester Polytech or Rensselaer Polytech. Those are, you know, in New England, that's the three sure. big. Sure. And, uh, I'd already applied to all those schools and I'd already gotten accepted to two out of the three and I was waiting on the third and I had scholarships and everything else. And one day I'm sitting down with him and he said, don't you like to fly? And I said, yeah. And he went over to the bookcase and pulled out this like three or four year old uh, in obviously in print uh, Air Force Academy book brochure. Yeah. And he tore out the back page, which was this little three by five postcard. And he said, here, fill this out and see what happens. <laughs> I said, okay. Okay. And so I filled it out and uh, back came this package on how to apply and all this kind of other stuff about two weeks later. And 
we sat down and we talked about it for a minute. And, and I said, okay, it's in Colorado, right? And he said, yeah. And he said, and I said, I asked him, can I ski when I'm out there? Because I love skiing. And he said, well, I imagine it's in the Rockies. And and he said, and then you can fly jets after that. And I said, you're kidding me. And he says, no. <laughs> Upon graduation, you go to flight training. And I said, well, but that's the one for me. Oh, and yeah. so I started the application process. No, no I, I got it. Were, were you a naturalized American? I mean, how did you get the? Yes, I was. In, in 1971, I became naturalized. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The, the whole family became naturalized that year. So, and I still can't figure out how I got into the academy, to tell you the truth. Uh, I, I wasn't the captain of the football. I grew up on a farm, so there was a lot of time spent working on the farm. So I didn't have time for Eagle Scout or captain of the football team or or a class president or anything else like that. I just worked my butt off on the farm. But I did have a private palace license and a couple hundred hours of flying time. And uh, the nice thing was the representative that Representative Steele that, that was in uh, responsible for that part of Connecticut, he sent all of the qualified applicants. There was like 40 of us to the academy and let the academy choose. Mm. And I think because of my flying time and I had really good SAT scores, you know, I, I guess that's what got me in there. I have no clue, you know, because I wasn't any of those things that you typically uh, think of that would into the academy. And, and that's, that's the only thing that... I've got, you know, for, go ahead. I was going to say, I think they're also impressed with the fact that Luftwaffe offspring was going to go fight for us during Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, this was, yeah, this was those at that time. Uh, and uh, so, and, and that's the one thing I've got to say for the, the graduates, you know, everybody gets fed this line of, uh, well, this this is your career path you should follow. You should do this and this and this and this and this and this. And we heard that at the academy at the, at the same time, you know, to do this and this and this to get the group staff or wing staff or whatever you wanted to achieve. And my dad told me a long time ago, he says, just do your best, you know, wherever you're, wherever, whatever job you get, whatever you get to do, whether it's bailing hay or flying F-15s or whatever you get, just do your best and things will work out. Don't don't think that if I don't lockstep into what everybody else thinks is a successful fill in the blank career lifestyle. I don't care what it is. Just do your damnedest and, and things will work out. And that's one thing I did find out in my career, you know, 30 years and I never filled out a dream sheet. I never filled out an assignment sheet. My wing commander just came to me and said, you need to you need to do this next. You know, <laughs> okay. I'm going to take care of you. You've done well here. And I'm going to take care of you. And uh, it, every assignment I got, I didn't expect. Uh, some of them I really didn't even want. And so, they all ended up being fantastic assignments. It was probably just like your uh, your duly uh, year. Those guys really cared for you too, right? The upper yeah. class. <laughs> yeah. They really cared for me. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, as that? a matter of fact, my boss here at uh, Maxwell, when I was a dean at the War College, he was the third degree training NCO in my squadron Lord. when I was a dually in, in Reb 11, uh, Altec. And uh, 30, you know, 20 some odd years later, we meet up again. He's three stars and I'm a colonel. And the funny part was, and he says, you know, you know, Colonel Eisen, did I, it's so good to see you again, da 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 da. And I said, well, it wasn't one of those receiving lines. And uh, he said, you can call me, you can call me Al. 
And I said, that's okay, sir. You can call me doctor because I had my doctorate degree <laughs> by then. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's all good. So how was how was your uh, how was your transition from uh, Connecticut to Colorado? How was my what now? Transition. How how was that? Was oh, that- it was a shock. Yeah. Uh, well, I had no military experience at all. Um, I I grew up in a small town. Everybody knew everybody. Uh, you know, I I played in the marching band. Uh, I did the high school thing. Uh, as far as you know, getting along with my classmates and, and doing doing a lot of fun things together. And I had shoulder, almost shoulder length hair. It was, it was long, but it wasn't too long. And I got some of it cut off before I, I got on the bus. And uh, when I got there and I stepped off that bus and all of a sudden I've got, you remember Ben Crenshaw, the linebacker from the uh, 74, 75, class of 75. I remember the name. I couldn't face yeah. Big, big monster. I mean, he was a linebacker. And here I am at 175 pounds. <laughs> and he just leans into me and starts screaming at me. And I'm going, what the hell is this all about? And, you know, you go through the thing. They buzz your hair. You know, you get your uniform and they're all of a sudden banging. You're in your room. Thank God my BCT roommate had previous military experience. He came from a military family. Oh. And he, sh- he showed me how to shine my shoes and how to make hospital corners and all that kind of other stuff. So it was a shock. I mean, that first night when I laid my uh, my head on the pillow and I felt that toothbrush because <laughs> my hair was so short. Yeah. I kind of went, oh, my God, what have I gotten myself into? I thought I was just going to come here and fly jets. <laughs> what? I was, uh, they, I, didn't, they didn't tell me about the four years in between. I thought they started us off pretty soft and then they fired that cannon the second night. I went, holy crap, what happened here? <laughs> I, I got I got yelled at coming off the bus. Uh, it was and it, you know they were real. They weren't. They it wasn't BCT style. You know where everybody's jumping on you and you're doing squat thrusts. You know like crazy. But I mean from the moment I got there, it was everybody was stone. It was stone faced. It was do this, do that. It wasn't anything about you know when you come from a little town, everybody's trying to be welcoming and friendly and that kind of thing. There wasn't any of that. <laughs> And no, I, I get it. I, you know, I get the psychology of it all. It's supposed to be a shock. It's supposed to be that big bucket of cold water. You're no longer a civilian. Welcome to the military. We, you know, we did the same thing at basic training when I was there. The TI gets on the bus, scares the piss out of all the new recruits. <clears throat> but it's to break you down, to build you back up again. I, I get that. And I, I, looking back on it, I totally understood it. <laughs> Having no experience and no forewarning what was going to happen. I was going, what the heck is going on here? I think and my I dad blown, gave me the. What's that? Saying, I was I was saying, I was blown away by the first shower formation. I had no idea that was coming. <laughs> oh, I'm no, none of that stuff. You know, skivvies <laughs> and shower clogs under arms and all that. No, I had no clue. Uh, the the good news for me was, I, I ran uh, track and cross country. And okay. uh, you know, w- w- living out in the country, to get to any of my friends' house was at least three or four miles on a bike. So my aerobic conditioning was phenomenal. I mean, they they tried to run me in the ground, and even the altitude change change, I got used to it within a couple of days. I was fine, and okay. you know the upperclassmen were trying to run me into the ground and stuff like that. And I'd go, "What what what are you trying to do here? Okay, I'll run as long as you want me to. I don't care." And that <laughs> part didn't bother me, but all the other stuff, you know, holding the rifle over your head for God knows how long while you're double timing and bringing your knees up to your chest and all that crap. That was yeah, bad. It was fun. Yeah, it was all yeah, fun. My altitude awakening was a swimming test. Okay. I was 
swimmer, and I all of a sudden I ran out of air about halfway through that test. I'm going, what is going on here? Because <laughs> it wasn't that far of a distance, but all of a sudden you couldn't breathe in. Yeah, there was the yeah that thin, that thin air can kind of affect a lot of folks. So so you went to Rebel Eleven. How did you, was that smooth sailing when you hit academics? Uh, I was okay. You know, I had this. How did I put this? Uh, there's three kids in my family. I'm the youngest. My oldest sister is the genius. I mean, she does have a measured IQ in the 150 range. My middle sister is the artist. She She's just phenomenal. Um, and I just work hard. And that's how I got through the academy. I just, I was not a, a natural engineer or a math or any of those things. I just knew that I had to study to make it through this place. And so academics didn't did not come easy. But I knew with discipline, you know, I, I could discipline myself academically. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I did fine. I think I got six or three, seven GPA overall. So right. no, no complaints. Okay. So you, you're on the dean's list, apparently. Yeah, I was on the dean's list every semester except my first one. My first semester, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember this, 2.91. <laughs> I missed 3.0 by 0.09. You know, because I, I think I got a C in PT or something. I don't know. Did Did you uh, get on the comms or soups list also? Yeah, I was on the, the soups list, um, I think maybe three or four semesters, sometime around my junior year. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, I was, I, after my freshman, first semester freshman year, I was on the dean's list the rest of the time. Wow. And, That's a... uh, I, I, I had on... some good – go ahead. Oh, I was just because I was on this other list many times. Yeah, the list. The, 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 the academic yeah. probation list. <laughs> well, the interesting part was in, a lot of times um, they match up somebody on the, you know, when you swap roommates all the time, they'd match <laughs> up somebody on the dean's list with somebody on Act Pro, you know, help each right. other out kind of thing. Yeah. And I, 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 a couple of semesters I had that, and that was fine. You know, I helped somebody uh, get ready for the GREs and stuff. But most of the time, I had some pretty phenomenally smart classmates for roommates. I mean, I had Dave Merrill, uh, I had Tim Brown, um, uh, Dave Dave Root. Uh, let's see, Brian Diefenbach. All these guys were like three point nine or four point oh GPA types, um, and they really helped me, you know, with my academic discipline. Going, okay, you know. Let's turn off the stereo. Let's, you know, let's stop writing lighters to our girlfriends and that kind of stuff and start, you know, getting ready for the whatever GREs coming up or whatever papers do or whatever. So that was kind of cool. We had the opposite problem in our squad. What's that? Yeah, we had the problem in our squad. We had, at one time, we had 20 guys in our class on ACPRO. Oh, God. <laughs> no, we, as, a, as a squadron, because uh, I was in 26 for two years. And then I was in 25th my senior year because, you know, they busted us all up after 70, the class of 75 graduated. And um, for in we were academic. Uh, 26 was at the top of the pile academically wow. the whole time I was there. Uh, yeah. And uh, even 25th squadron, I think my senior year, there, we were in the top 10 squadrons academically. So, and, you know, you keep going, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning of this little thing about, you know, what messages do you have? <clears throat> the friends I made at the Academy, I mean, I still keep in close contact with. I mean, I still played golf with Denny Ray. He's my squatter mate, my my classmate. 
and he lives a mile and a half from me. You wow. know, he went off and flew F-16s for 20 some odd years and I did some other stuff and we ended up at the war college together at the end. And it was like five minutes after we saw that we were both going to be, you know, in the same unit and that kind of stuff. It was like we picked up where we left off the day we graduated the academy. You know, it's it's that kind of friendship. And at the reunions, oh, my gosh, we had at the 45th reunion, we had of my 20, we had 26 graduate from the 26th squadron of the Barons. Okay. Two are dead. So we're down to 24 and 21 of the 24 showed up for the reunion. That's great. That's a great turnout. That's that's freaking awesome. I mean, that was, that was, I, I couldn't believe it, you know, and we basically badgered the the three that couldn't make it uh, so badly that they promised on all sorts of stacks of Bibles that they will be at the next reunion, the 50th one. So that's a good type, that's a good type bond. It is. It, it was, that's the amazing part to me is, is, you know, I've got friends in the civilian world and they're all fraternity brothers and sorority sisters and stuff like that. And I said, I get it. And I said, I know you have lifelong friends out of that. And I said, but you haven't experienced the misery and misery <laughs> yeah. really bonds people together. It really does. <clears throat> it really does. We're cleaning those rooms it's, on Friday night. <laughs> yep. It, it's, it's a weird way to bond, but boy, does it, I mean, uh, when I watch, my army friends, you know, the band of brothers kind of concept. And I'm going, yep, I get that. Um, uh, you know, it's, it, it is interesting how that friendship lasts. And out of my squadron, let's see, my UPT class of 32, uh, nine of us were from the same squadron. Oh, wow. We all bid. We all bid for the same base in the same class. And it was Columbus, which nobody wanted to go to. Yeah. And it was the last class. It was 7802, the last class that fiscal year. So we had to wait six months to start pilot training. But it was worth it to go to Columbus, which nobody, you know, everybody wanted to go to Willie or, you know, someplace like that. Uh, and everyone wanted to go to pilot training right away. And we all went, no, we'd rather go together. And uh, the nine of us went together to flight training. You know, Dave Root from my, uh, my senior at the academy roommate was my roommate at UPT. And every one of us made it through flight training. No, nobody washed out. And everybody in my nine or I think it was nine or 10 of us from the, from the Academy, uh, every one of us got our first choice assignment. Wow. Cool. Yeah. It was, it, we were tight. I mean, we really were. So, so back to your uh, cadet days, did you do a third Lieutenant? I did third Lieutenant. It was awesome. I was on a C5 crew out of Dover and we went around the world. Uh, not too many people can claim this, but I've been to Tehran, Iran. So uh, we were, yeah, we were supporting the delivery of twelve brand new F4Es, and the the C5 I was on was uh, taking all the age equipment, all the aerospace ground equipment over there. I, I had the same similar deal. My C5, we had nine uh, Huey attack helicopters in the, the uh, cargo bay. Oh, cool. Yeah, it just, I mean, the places we went and the was that was a three-week program or something like that yeah and i think i was on dover for one day maybe day and a half you know the, the my navigator my uh my first lieutenant navigator said don't don't unpack just throw your b4 back here because you're getting on the airplane tonight and we're going to ramstein i'm going really i said yeah and did you, uh, did you with here were you just with a, a an officer i was with an officer 
I did third sergeant uh, the summer after my duly year. Ended up <laughs> kind of interesting, ironically. I read, ended up at Lackland, <laughs> and I worked. Uh, I worked over in the B, B, uh, BMT complex uh, for those three weeks as a as a third sergeant. Lived in the dorms and all that stuff. And third lieutenant, I was attached to this navigator on a C five, and uh, literally we the wheels went up. And I think we broke down in Egypt for two days. You know, all C5s break down. Yeah. At least back then they did. Um, and then the rest of the time we were airborne. We were hauling crap somewhere. Well, I love the orders. Yeah. We got the, probably got the same orders. The orders were uh, you were a crew, but you weren't uh, responsible to do anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That was it. And uh, they he set up this little station, this little it was it was kind of like a steel wheel with a with a, a rod and, and a little a padded seat on top of it and i just sat next to him and as we you know did the navigator stuff and then the co-pilot would get out of his seat every once in a while and i'd jump up there and and fly for a while and uh so they had me they had me back there with the load masters uh when it came time to uh check the straps and all that kind of stuff and load and unload and uh it was really fun i i, I learned a lot about crew flying uh and what it took to get that big airplane up in the sky and get it around the world yeah that, uh, it was that my, was cool my first c5 flight we got to the, the cockpit and it, it was like taking an apartment building down the road yeah it was yeah <laughs> and, and hoping you could clear the uh runway you know clear the ta- line power lines and the buildings at the end of the runway yeah uh, you're pretty much what on the third or fourth story of, of an apartment yeah, and we uh, yeah, we're at eye level the people on the roof on the penthouse. Um, yeah, and we yeah. did a refueling thing, one leg, and that was pretty cool sitting up there with the refueling. Did you my, get? To- my, my, I enjoyed the third lieutenant uh, yeah. tour. That was pretty cool. So so okay, so you you were an outstanding kid, outstanding uh, uh, academic kid. Did you have any ways to blow off steam? What was your what was your pressure relief valve? Oh, let's see. Um, you remember Horse Renner from the football team? He was a linebacker. Remember the name? Yeah. Yeah, he's he's our classmate. He was in twenty six squadron with me, and he was an avid, believe it or not, you know, this monster guy. He's probably two thirty, two forty, which was big for academy days. He loved backpacking. And uh, we had our own backpacking equipment and camping equipment. And we used to, uh, on whenever we could get away from the from the cadet area, we would just go up in the Rampart Range and, and just go backpacking up there. Um, and when we finally, in our junior and senior year, our senior year when we had cars, we would drive up uh, to the, what was called the uh, Collegiate Range, which is a series of three or four mountains in the Rockies uh, named after you know, Yale or Harvard. I can't remember the, the names of the mountains, but it was a national park area. Hmm. And we would just park our car at the trailhead, leave a note, you know, uh, <laughs> we should be back in 72 hours or 48 hours or however long we had. And we would just, we would hike up above the tree line and uh, we'd always camp on the east side of the slope. And the sun rises at 13,500 feet when it's, you know, 10 degrees outside. Wow. But you can see for 150 miles because you're so high up. Oh yeah, but those sunrises were spectacular. They were really awesome. Uh, oh. We did we did quite a bit of camping. Is that what led you to a physical geography? Yeah. Uh, it, it well, one thing is 
I was always interested in the earth sciences, <clears throat> uh, being a farmer. Yeah. And uh, I knew that uh, being able to read maps <laughs> was going to be important in pilot training. And I mean that, and I, I just enjoyed the courses. Uh, there was a major Smith on the faculty uh, that I had as a, I think a sophomore in one of the mandatory geography courses. And he was just cool. You know, and sometimes you're just attracted to people because, you know, they, they really love what they're doing and you've got an interest in it too. And that's how I kind of, kind of how I ended up with that major. And uh, I had him, and believe it or not, I had a guy by the name of uh, Captain Tribble. Uh, <laughs> Paul Tribble was in the geography department. I don't know if you remember him or not. And guess what? It's, it's return, Lieutenant Colonel retired Paul Tribble, lives in Pike Road, six miles from here. <laughs> and his daughter runs they live out on a little farm and his daughter has a little uh, uh, farm too and that's where i take my dogs and my cats and stuff when i uh, want to board them when yeah. I'm, we're going to leave town or something else like that i take them out to the to the to the triple household and so uh you know it's it's a small world it's really amazing how small this world is he ended up as an acs instructor at the end of his career he had a phd from oklahoma Cool. And uh, yeah, small world. Last uh, question is, uh, did you get any awards or, or special recognition at the end? No, uh, I was just I, DG'd. I did graduate. Okay. Uh, I like to tell, I like to tell my, I like, to, I like to tell all my friends that, you know, when they find out I have a doctorate degree, Oh, you must be really smart. And I said, no, you got to remember my undergraduate degree. I majored in graduation. <laughs> they kind of look at me and go, I wanted to fly jets. That's all I ever wanted to do was fly jets. And I knew I needed to get through these four years. And uh, so I majored in graduation. I did the best I could. And, uh, and we'll just leave it at that. Well, you did and great. We'll all laugh. What an honor, Grad. No, I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Let me tell you, man, being on the back road, that was, you, you, were, you were done about three hours before I was. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so you graduated and you had six months of what'd you do months uh went to columbus mississippi and was a casual student and uh they put me in an office uh it was basically a management analysis office it was kind of like in the fm section of the support and i had a boss uh he you know he was a he was a lieutenant colonel and uh his job was to be the basically the assistant to the comptroller and he gave me a, a lot of projects to to analyze and to see how the Air Force spent its money. And it was it was eye opening to me because, you know, here I am just a <clears throat> brand new lieutenant and I'm getting to look at things that the wing commander approves. And I got to sit in on the staff meetings when those budgetary decisions were made. And uh, the data that I provided, they actually used at the meeting. They didn't go, oh, you give it to somebody else and they'll, you know, they'll make sure it's right kind of stuff. It, they took it at face value that you're an academy grad. You should be able to do math and you should be able to write reports. And uh, that was kind of cool. And you said you got your uh, flu fight training, no sweat. Uh, did you have uh, you got your first voice assignment? What was that? Um, well, I had to, I struggled in, in flight training a little bit. Uh, P-37s were hard for me. I don't know why. Uh, it's noisy. It's smelly. It's not pressurized. Uh, you know, but I got through it. Uh, you know, I, I busted my instrument check. And uh, I never forget going up with my squadron commander for my uh, 
initial progress check ride, which is the ride that you get after you've busted a check ride yep. and you're kind of nervous. And here I am, a snot-nosed lieutenant flying with uh, uh, with the Lieutenant Colonel Squadron Commander. And oh my God, it wasn't the best ride in the world. Uh, but Lieutenant Colonel Jimmy Poole, who guess what? Plays golf at the Arrowhead Country Club right down the road from me. So I get to see him quite a bit. <laughs> he had a quality cut on my career. And after the ride, it was over. He said, that wasn't your best ride, was it? I'm going, oh no, he's going to tell me I'm busted. And he says, but I see a lot of potential you passed today. And wow. uh, I went, Phew. and for some reason or other, I got to T-38s and there was no looking back. I mean, it was, it was like that that jet was made for me. Um, now I, I had my struggles in it, but boy, once we started formation flying, I mean, I think on the second ride in formation, I was sticking at three feet and the, my IP was going, you kind of like this, don't you? And I said, I love this shit. Uh, <laughs> it, it was pretty cool. I, I, and that, that, I think that's why they made me a 38 IP is because I loved it so much. And that's, but and that's they didn't keep, yeah, they didn't keep me at Columbus. They uh, shipped me off to Shepherd. Yeah. In Wichita Falls, Texas, which is not the end of the earth, but you can see it. <laughs> and I went, oh, my God, what am I doing at Wichita? It was a great assignment because back then it was just the Germans. And you got to remember, my dad was German. I'm German and uh, I speak fluent German. And so uh, I never told the students I did I could uh, speak German fluently. And they'd trash talk the American IPs in the, in the shoot room. And I'd be able to listen in on the conversations. And I'd go back to the IP room and go, hey, you know what these guys are saying about you? Four and a half years at Shepard, they never figured it out, the, who, their, who their spy was. But uh, And, and then, yeah, you, then the last scene, something called Astra? Yeah, the, uh, I, I, was, I ended up being a wing standaval, which was kind of unusual for a fate, uh, especially in the year, it ended up being the urinato program. By the time I left, we were initial cadre for that. <clears throat> and my wing commander comes down one day and he goes, damn, you've done a good job for me. We've got NGEP up and running, you know, da 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 I'm going to get you a great assignment. I said, great, sir. And about a week later, he meets me in the bar because everybody was at the bar Friday nights back then. And he said, got your assignment. I said, great. Where's my F-15? Where's it going to be too? And he looks at me and he goes, you're going to the Pentagon. <laughs> And I remember dropping the F-bomb right in front of him and his wife. Wow. <laughs> and uh, Colonel Phillips, Bum Phillips, was uh, was the wing commander. He said, yeah, I probably had the same reaction to He was an old F-4 Vietnam era guy. He says, but this is this is pretty this is pretty cherry. Uh, 70, uh, 70 young captains a year. Selection. 35 rated, 35 non-rated. It's an air staff training. You're basically going up to the Pentagon to get groomed. Well, that's that's what, what does it mean to be groomed? Yeah, I had no military background. I know any, what, any of these. He said, we see something. And I said, great. And so I went to the Pentagon for a year. Great times. I was, I was on the budget staff um, up in the personnel department. I worked directly for some three stars. Again, putting together briefings, doing analysis, and all that kind of crap. Uh, enjoyed the year out there. I really did. It was it was sixteen hours, eighteen hours a day sometimes, especially during the crunch of the budget season. But uh, it was worth it. It really was. Um, and, and at the end of that, I had F fifteen to Kadena. 
and then General Breach took it away. <laughs> for, uh, and I was for pissed again. <laughs> for 48 hours, I did it 15, and it, they <laughs> took it away. And totally understand why he did it. It was strictly for personnel reasons. He had too many five- and six-year captains going into the F-15 and not enough second lieutenants out of flight training, and he was creating a, a, a what they call in a personnel business a bathtub or a bulge, depending on which side of the curve you're on, and he, he <laughs> couldn't do that. And so he turned off all the five- and six- and seven-year captains from going to F-15. So any captain that started out in an F-4, and I had two of my classmates uh, out of pilot training go to the F-4 for four years and then try to get to the F-15, and they were shut off. Oh, that hurt. So um, get a phone call from my ex-squadron commander at Columbus. Uh, I mean, Columbus at Shepard. That's now the DO down at uh, the 12th at Randolph. And he says, heard you can't get a job. <laughs> I dropped the F-bomb in front of him, too. I use the <laughs> F-bomb a lot, I guess. And he said, well, come down to Randolph via 38 uh, 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 pit IP, pilot instructor training IP. We'll take care of you. And so what does the captain say to a colonel? Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's that yeah. I, I did believe in service before self. And I did believe that if you did well, the people that were responsible for taking care of you would do that for you. And I was not disappointed in my, in my 30 years. Uh, I, I never had a wing commander come up to me afterwards and go, man, you did a good job, but we're going to screw you. Yeah. And they had re they had uh, they had excuses to do that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but they did. And uh, so I ended up at Randolph and two years down in the pit squadron, <clears throat> did flight commander, did exec officer. And commander at Pitt got selected to be the uh, ATC command stand of Al director. And six months after he got up there, he gives me a phone call and he said, how'd you like to be a command flight evaluator? I'm going, yeah. <laughs> so I did that for two years. So that was four years at Randolph in the T-38. And uh, then got uh, got to go to ACSE in residence. And he, he just happened to be a student at the War College when I was a student at ACSE. And then uh, he said, well, I'm going to the Pentagon. That's my next tour. And he says, I'm going to get you an assignment up there. It's time for your, you know, your air staff tour. And we'll take care of you. I'm going, great. <laughs> And about a week later, I get a phone call going, remember that job you were going to get at the Pentagon? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're staying at ACS. He's an instructor. What? I dropped the, the F-bomb again. <laughs> I, you know, I keep saying, you know, to, to everybody is, you know, don't have a plan for your career because you plan and everybody else laughs. <laughs> you know, some folks can do that. Some folks can actually plan out a career and they've got the right connections and stuff like that. I had none of those connections. But they kept me at ACSE, and I had a great time. It was, a, it was. I mean, I spent uh, two years on the ACSE faculty, a year and a half as an SOS squadron commander, and uh, I mean, everybody down there took good care of me. Uh, worked hard and had a great time. And then you got to remember when I was at ATC Stanavals, when they asked me, not asked me, they told me a four star talking to a captain. You know, what do you say? Yes, sir. This thing called career trainer. And that's what set my career path was uh, this four-star uh, General Shaw came back from a Corona conference and need some folks to be permanently assigned to ATC. That's going to be your entire career. It's a great career path that, to 06 and wing command. He says, have this because ATC is too much of a rental command. Everybody's just passing through. Nobody cares enough. 
And so there was several hundred of us that were picked over the years wow. and it worked great. I mean, for, from 84 to 91, you know, we, we built a hell of an air force uh, through the training command and guess what? 91 is when desert storm kicked off and we had some yep. pretty good aviators. Um, uh, but I can make a long story short, uh, desert storms over general McPeak becomes the uh, chief of staff. And he says, I don't know about this career trainer stuff. So literally overnight, he signs a memo and our career field is dissolved. Wow. I mean, I no longer have a home. And so uh, I'm sitting there as, a, as an SOS squadron commander going, and I just made lieutenant colonel. And my uh, two-star, one, no, one-star, General Lord, Lance Lord, and eventually became a four-star space command guy. He comes down to my <clears throat> my office one afternoon. He says, uh, I need to talk to you. And I said, yes, sure. And he said, uh, General McPeak just uh, signed out a memo that your career field is canceled. <laughs> and uh, once again, so I dropped the F-bomb, you know, because yeah. I've been working hard. I got promoted two years early to major, you know, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. And uh, all of a sudden, my, literally, the rug is pulled out from underneath you. And I'm in a non-flying billet at SOS, and I'm going, what am I going to do next? This was 1991, so I am four years short, five years short of 20 years. Yeah. You're and I don't know what to do. Very gray and, area. Yeah. And so General Lord looks at me and he goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. You know, that, I, I keep hearing those words. And the, the sons of the guns, they, they kept coming through. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, I get a phone call a couple of days later from uh, the uh, chief of assignments at ATC, you know, a guy that I flew with on ATC stand of <clears throat> and uh, Frank, Frank Sheely, Sheely pops is, was his call. And uh, he said, Hey, you want to go back to flying? And I'm going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, well, you'll have to go on a T-37 because you got so much teeth, you, you know, two full of three full assignments in a T-38. You need to go to the tweet. I said, no problem. You stick me in a jet. And he said, well, because you volunteered for the T-37. I mean, this guy's a used car salesman. <laughs> he says, I'll give you the base of your choice. And, you know, back then, everybody wanted to go to Williams at Phoenix, yeah. Arizona. Yeah. <clears throat> and I said, I want you to send me to the base where the Lieutenant Colonel Manning is the worst, where no Lieutenant Colonel wants to go. He says, you're kidding me. And I said, no. I said, I don't care where it is, Del Rio, Columbus, da, da, da. He said, well, I just happen to need somebody at Columbus. <laughs> and I said, you got to be, you know, I dropped the F-bomb again. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was bad news, but it was good news, too, because um, my wife was from Tuscaloosa. Okay. So it's 60 miles from her home. It's not bad. And I said, okay, my career termination light is coming. It's starting to blink in the lower right-hand <laughs> corner of the cockpit because my career trainer career feels over. I'm going back to flying, but I got her close to home. I can start transitioning, figuring out if I'm going to go, you know, FedEx or whatever. And I get to Columbus as the uh, an heir apparent T-37 IP. And the, the day before I get there, they fired the uh, 38 ops officer. <laughs> and they're 90 days out from an inspection. So I get called into the DO's office. And he's a cigar chomping old school kind of guy. And he drops more F-bombs than I do. And he said, turn in your tweet manuals. Here's a set of 38, uh, here's a 38-1. You've got five days to check out. You're going to be a 38 ops officer. you got uh, <clears throat> 90 days to the IG inspection. Good luck. 
that was my introduction to Columbus. I had a ball. And the, and the guy you a, told me earlier, the, that? the guy you replaced it, uh, kind of left his guys hanging, right? Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, uh, the, I had, I had a good squadron commander. Will Merkel was my squadron commander, a we, a wild weasel guy. So, I mean, you know, the, the guy was good. He just had an ops officer that was clueless. So I just walked in there and went, uh, I sat down with three or four of the, you know, here I am a career trainer without a career and a squadron full of major weapon systems guys. And I'm walking in as the DO and they're going, why couldn't we pick one of our own kind of, you know, that, and yeah. I was an outsider. Yeah. And I said, look, we're 90 days out from an inspection. We sink or swim together. So you bring me your problems. I'll give you top cover. We're going to make this work. And we did fine on the inspection. I mean, everything was, was great. And uh, then the saga started of, remember that guy who was the Stanaval, my squadron commander at Pitt, and then the ATC Stanaval chief who hired me up there? Well, now he's the incoming wing commander <laughs> at Columbus. He shows up, he looks at me and he goes, can't I get rid of you? <laughs> I said, nope, I'm like a booger. You just can't flick me off your finger. He says, okay. <clears throat> so get me a squatter. And he tried, he tried and tried and tried. Well, the commander at the time of ATC was a guy by the name of Joe Ashy. And if you ever want to Google his name, you're going to come up with blogs on how to hate Joe Ashy. He was a pretty, a pretty miserable four-star. I mean, he ate colonels for breakfast and career trainers. They were persona non grata as far as he was concerned. Uh, three times my squadron commander, my wing commander went down to, to uh, Randolph and put my folio in and said, look, I want him to be a squadron commander at Columbus. <clears throat> and three times Joe Ashy didn't just take the folder off the desk and put it in the out basket. He threw my records out the door. <laughs> and I know that because his exec, Greg Bundy, was a friend of mine. He said, he called me up one day and he says, you hold a record at ATC. And I said, what's the record? <laughs> Your records have been thrown the furthest out of that office. You got the most flight time and, in record. <laughs> yes. My records have more flying time than anybody else's. And he dropped the F-bomb on my records. He says, there's no way I'm going to have an effing career trainer in my command as a squadron commander. Wow. So Nick Ardilla comes back for the third time and he goes, I'm going to keep trying, but Anyway, the day of the change of command between uh, Joe Ashy and his successor, uh, which was uh, General Butch Basilio, Nick Ardillo is the first person on his calendar after the change of command. And he walks in there and he says, this guy I know is a career trainer. He needs to lead my T-37 squadron because they just, the T-37s had a mid-air. Um, mm. 40, 40 days before I uh, took over the squadron. They had a mid-air, and it was four IPs. Four instructor pilots took two T-37s up in the sky and crashed them. Wow. Uh, now, the good news is they all survived, but the, 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 the comedy of errors and lack of supervision and all the other stupid things, you know, you, when you watch these TV programs on these airplane crashes and they look at the sequence of events, yeah. If you watch this one of this t these two T-37s, uh, the, stupid, the stupidity that occurred, you kind of go, oh, my, how could you let this happen? How, I mean, anybody yeah. with common sense. And so I walked down the hall from the 38 DO to be the 37 squadron commander. And of course, all the folks down the tweet squadron, they're dragging their ass in the ground because four IPs just crashed. You know, 
it's bad enough, quote unquote, flying the tweet. Now we can't even fly the airplane without <laughs> yeah. hitting each other. Yeah. And here comes the prima donna, you know, 38 ops old guy. And I walked in there and took over the squadron. And the first thing I did was I just closed the doors and I said, and I had a, a meet a, a commander's call. I didn't call it that. I just said, it's a, it's a flying safety meeting, IPs only. And I brought him in there and I had some beer and we had some pretzels and I sat down in front of him and I went, what the F? Yeah, really? I mean, a heart to heart, what the F? You guys are better than this. And I basically told them they had the most important job in the Air Force. They took hamburger off the streets and turned them into military aviators. And the only way you can do that is if you, if you are first a dedicated military aviator yourself, which is you follow the rules. You use a checklist every time you go out to the jet. You don't you don't put the checklist in your, your bottom map, you know, in the in the map uh, box. You don't stick it in the bottom pocket of your flight suit. You have it on your knee because that's what the student needs to learn. Yep. And the thing is, if they learn to an extraordinarily high level, they're going to drop 20% when they walk out the door with their wings as yeah. far as flight discipline, just because they're cool now. But if you have them at a super high level, even if they're still going to be damn good and they'll be safe. And they'll, and they'll get five hours. Yeah. Yeah. The first 500 hours on their own without killing themselves. But if you're down here at the, you know, too cool for school attitude with flying, they're going to walk out 20% below that. That's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And we started inventing a whole bunch of things to do to, you know, to have, you know, we had a map in the squadron and, you know, the, the tweet can go anywhere. And I said, go somewhere, go somewhere when nobody else is gone. Go somewhere where all they've got is ab gas and motor oil, and you've got to mix the two to make your damn tweet run. I don't care where you go, go. And they started going to some of these off the wall places on their cross countries and, and putting pins in. And we put the map with the pins in it yeah. in the hallway between the two squadrons. And that pin was, that map was just full of, of and each flight had their own colored pin. Okay. So you could see which flight went to the weirdest places. <laughs> of course, the 38 guys. They couldn't go anywhere without 8,000 feet in a pollution unit. Sure. And uh, pretty soon they're going, oh, you got to go there. You got to go to Key West. Yeah, we went to Key West. <laughs> you know, you got to go to Navy Lemoore and do this and this and this. You got to go to this little place on an island in Michigan. Yeah, we got to go there. You know, and then, of course, when you go to all these little places, all of a sudden you start getting invited to air shows. Yeah. Hey, would you do a flyby? Sure. What do you want? Four ship or eight ship? And I don't know if you've ever seen eight T-37s flying in formation. It's pretty cool. It's not bad, you know? And uh, so morale skyrocketed. We won all sorts of awards. We won the Flying Safety Award for the two years I was a squadron commander every year. We, we, we had record low washout rates because um, the students were motivated and the instructors were motivated. That was a phenomenal tour. So, but... Then you got to go to a naval war college. Yeah, and that was weird because the incoming, you know, uh, Nick Ardillo only lasted about a year into my tour, and then another guy came in by the name of Doc Fogelsong. There's another name you can look up on the internet and find <laughs> all sorts of hate groups. He was another. He was Joe. He was Joe Ashy's era. Uh, he hated career trainers. Uh, when I went through the receiving line uh, to meet him, uh, he looked at me and he said. You're the career trainer, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. He says, I don't know what the F a career trainer is doing in my wing. Uh-oh. And I'm going, oh, 
my blinking career termination light just went red because <laughs> I'm coming up primary to Colonel now, you know, in the next 18 months. And here's my wing commander and he hates me. But he doesn't even well, know me. <laughs> he doesn't even know me, but because I'm, a, you know, it's stereotyping. Yeah, I, I, I get it. Yeah. yeah. But the thing that he couldn't do was he could not not acknowledge that I knew more about the training business than he'll ever learn. <laughs> and every time he tried to pull some stunt, somebody from ATC would call back down and go, sir, understand it, da, 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 but you realize you got the best T-37 squadron in the command. <laughs> you know, they're graduating students at 10% higher rates than anybody else. Their mission, you know, our, our, our NMC rates on our airplanes were record lows because our maintenance guys were part of our team and we loved them. We took care of them. They took care of us. I mean, we, that was the best, the best two years of my life, even though I had a miserable wing commander for, for about a year of it. Yeah. And lo and behold, here comes time for the assignment. And I'm going, I don't know what this guy's going to do to me. But remember the old adage, you do a good job and they'll take care of you. Yeah. The guy sends me to the Naval War College. My, I mean, they asked me, where do you want to go to senior service school? Because I was on the list. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll go to Naval War College if they'll let me. Next thing you know, I'm going to Naval War College and uh, had a blast up there. And again, they didn't know what to do with me afterwards because now career trainers really did. It's been seven years since the career field was terminated. <clears throat> and I get another phone call from guess who? The <laughs> vice wing commander at Columbus, who is now stationed at Maxwell. <laughs> you know, it's all about you never know who's going to help you. You, you know, all this thing about relationships and, yeah. and working with folks and working with folks. And Mike Four calls me up. He says, you want a job at Maxwell? It's close to Tuscaloosa. I know that's your wife's hometown. Oh. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I know your career field has been terminated. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> and I said, yeah, find me a job down there. You know, uh, I'll start my transition to civilian life. And uh, so I ended up back at Maxwell. And the, I, when I left the Naval War College, I was the number one grad and the senior Air Force advisor there hated my guts. He was an F-15 guy and he didn't understand why a career trainer was at the Naval War College. And he couldn't stand the fact that I was doing so well academically. He gets me a P for Colonel, not a definitely promote, a P. So now I'm seeing my career termination light going, well, there it goes. <laughs> it's, it's really glowing right, bright red. I better pull the pins out of my seat here because I'm going to have to eject. <laughs> well, I get down to Maxwell and the uh, commander, the Air War College, I'm on the staff. I'm not good enough to be on the faculty because um, I'm not a colonel. Right. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's got this personnel problem, this issue with the students and, and the way they're timing students in the senior service school. He's lamenting at the staff meeting and I'm just sitting against the back wall my boss who's a colonel uh, on the staff and I go you know if we did this and this and this analysis what question and my guy goes you can do that and I said so I go through personnel records yada 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 and lo and behold I present to the commandant why we have this problem and he goes geez I'm going to take this to Corona and so I took he took it to Corona he came back and they changed the way students were assigned to senior service school based on that briefing. Wow. And he said, aren't you coming up for Colonel? And I said, yes, sir. He said, what do you, what do you have? And I said, sir, I got a P. 
and he dropped the F-bomb. He said, I'm going to fix that. Here you go again. Do a good job. Work hard. It always works out. And he got me a DP. He got promoted to colonel. Cool. Uh, and from from that, I got on the faculty. And from that, the AU commander uh, gave me the opportunity to, to start up a brand new level of PME at Maxwell uh, for lieutenants. And from that, I got to go to BMT. And from that, I got to come back to ROTC to be the commander. And then back to the War College as the dean. I mean, it's it's always, you know, if I have any advice for anybody, it's just do your best. The world's not perfect, but do your best. And invariably, it's going to turn out just fine. Was no. my career anywhere close to what I thought it was going to be on my day of graduation? Not even a shadow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I didn't want to be a fape. I wanted to be an F-15 guy. I wanted to go to Kadena. I wanted to kill commies, you know. It didn't turn out that way. Did I have a great time? Absolutely. Did you have any uh, close calls at the instructor pilot? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you know. The F-15 guy, the enemy's 3,000 feet away. You know, at least you got a missile shot at him. My enemy was in the other cockpit. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting next to you. <laughs> Sitting next to me in the tweet. Oh, and the internet. You know, I've, I've trained pilots in 26 different countries. Wow. <clears throat> and uh, offline, I could tell you some stories about some different cultures and how they how they approach flight training. Um, well, having and, also and talked to Tehran, I can tell you they had a lot of Iranian uh, pilot uh, candidates at Pensacola when I was going through that. Flight. Oh, yeah. And the joke amongst the, uh, the instructor pilots there was they called them migranians. Migranians, they yeah. They gave everybody headaches. They didn't. They wouldn't headaches. Follow orders. Yeah, we, yeah, yep, absolutely. We had, uh, let's see, we had four, we had four Iranians in my UPT class. And when we were, when we were at Shepard, we had, I think, a flight of 12. Uh, Iranians, of course, that all went away when the Shah died, uh, when the Shah got knocked off. Yep, but uh, I mean, at Columbus, we had students in Kuwait and uh, uh, UAE and I think Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And some of them were very, very good, especially the ones that went to British schools first, you know, and British educated. And there's some of them that were just scary as hell. Uh, they should not have been because of who they were, not what they could do. Or who daddy that's was. Part of, yeah, that's that's part of the culture. You know, my daddy is Sultan bin something or other, and so therefore I'm entitled to go to pilot training. Not if you're going to kill me. Uh, there were several times I got phone calls from the State Department because I was about to wash out some kind of thing, and I. Yeah, and it's just different cultural approaches to, to, to flying and learning and being able to take criticism. You know, Americans, uh, Europeans, you, you, you tell a lieutenant, you try to kill me, you dumb son of a gun. You know, don't do this. And they go, okay, sir, I will never do it again. Uh, some cultures you tell them, and it's not just the Middle East, the Japanese culture. It's all about saving face. And especially if you debriefed them in front of their classmates and you yeah. said, you try to kill me. Yeah. Oh, man, they shut down. Um, and at Columbus, when I was squadron commander, we actually set up deep, what we call debriefing rooms and they were optional. And that's where you took some of the internationals to debrief them if they had a bad ride. So that way you wouldn't embarrass them in front of their classmates and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I would, I would think also Japan and British students or anybody that grew up driving on the other side of the road might have challenges with, uh, 
which yeah. they're going to break when they're in a, in a duress situation. They might they might go the wrong way. Yeah, they, they might, but uh, it's it was just interesting. And the for the Middle Eastern ones, the, the you know you, you got to be culturally adaptive. I always tried to be culturally adaptive, and so I didn't want to send home that kid who just you know he's he's the Bin Laden or whatever you know Sultan kind of guy. And I'm going, yeah, I know he's going to lose a lot of face. It's not going to be a whole lot of fun for his culture. Yeah. You know, in America, you wash out of flight training, you find another career and you move on. You know, that's just kind of our attitude. And it's different. So what we did was when we had a kid that was ready to, to wash out, they always flew the last ride with me. Okay. It was all that. No, no. Always flew the last ride with me. And at the end of the ride, we would just go into my offices, peace and quiet in there. <coughs> and we go, what do you think? Uh, you know, tell me what you thought. You know, would debrief you. And nine times out of ten, that student would go, "Man, I, I did not do this correctly." You know, da 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 da. And they would self-conclude that, "Yeah, I really don't need to be doing this." Yeah. And then I would sit down with them. I'd say, "Look," I said, "I know it's an issue." You know, I said, "This is this is not fun for anybody to go through." You're going to go to the flight surgeon. And he's going to do a medical evaluation on you because I think some of your flying problems may be medically related. Hmm. And he go, okay. So I sent him off to the flight surgeon and he'd come back with an inner ear imbalance yeah, or something. So he was medically disqualified from flight training. Safe face. Yeah. yeah, there you go. He didn't lose, you know, he didn't lose any face. He went home with something on his records. That's, and it could have been, you know, disorient, easily disoriented, can't think in the third dimension, you know, whatever it is. Could be something with his inner ear. It could be something with his eyesight. It could be something with his whatever. But it's now a medical issue, not a performance issue. Like a dyslexia thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so that's how we got around. That's how we addressed that issue and so kept after, the squadron safe. After being dean of the Air War College, you entered and did something I've never heard of. And I think the group of the people listening still would be uh, fascinated to know what what does the director of Air Force negotiations do? Oh, that was fun. Uh, I get ready to retire as the War College uh, Dean, and my boss is a two-star. Never agreed on anything. <laughs> he was an idea for good ideas. And my basic, uh, you know, I'm a farmer. I come from a farming background, engineering background. I like to keep things running, which means I need resources, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm not the most imaginative or in, ingenious person in the world. I, I, I can't do that. I'm, I, you know, one side of my brain isn't as strong as the other. But so whenever he came up with a great idea, I'd sit down with him and go, okay, sir, we can do this, but we either can't do this. In other words, there's a limited amount of resources, or you need to find me these resources so we can do it. And he'd go, oh, we can't do that. We don't have these resources. And I said, well, yeah, duh. You know, that guy, so uh, the, the Air Force uh, JAG, the AFJA, uh, SES, I don't know, 4 million, whatever that rank is, uh, they were coming up on, um, I'm trying to think of the uh, civilian personnel system that they were making an adjustment to back in the 2004, 5, and 6 timeframe. It was, it was a modification of the GS program, but it involved uh, more stringent feedback and actual negotiation of work work conditions and work settings. And they were basically getting all these military folks to engage with these civilian employees in a negotiation 
And these folks had never negotiated before because, you know, colonels just told lieutenant colonels what to do. <laughs> right. And so this started kind of percolating at the air staff. And at the same time, they're going, you know, that might be a really good skill set for folks to have because coalition operations, joint operations, you're working more and more with peers or you're working more and more with people you have no direct authority over. I mean, that's what a coalition is all about. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you got somebody over there who belongs to a different military and you got to get him to do what you need to get done, but you have no direct authority over him. So how do you do that? Well, you negotiate. Um, so the dean agrees with the Air Force JAG and the Air Force DP and the chief of staff. And they're going to have this pilot program uh, called the Negotiation Center. <clears throat> And we had a three-year uh, clause, a three-year uh, sunset clause. After three years, if we did, if the air staff didn't think we were doing what we're supposed to be doing and doing it successfully, yada yada yada, it would go away. And so my commandant calls me up about 120 days out from retirement, and I already had several other job offers away from the, the military, away from the government service, and. Uh, he said, have you heard about this negotiation center? And I said, yeah. And he said, have you applied for it? And I said, no. He said, I think you'd be perfect for it. And I said, well, who's the hiring authority? He said, well, I am. And I said, well, why the hell should I apply? You know, I've never seen anything, you know, seen eye to eye on anything. He said, yeah, but you were always able to negotiate with me. And we'd work it out. He says, you can do this. And so I applied for it and, and went through the interview process with, you know, the, the it's it's a panel of people and all that crap. And I get hired. And I had a blast. Uh, we created uh, it within the within Maxwell and the professional military education system. We created all sorts of coursework and we had electives. Uh, we had b- both in the core curriculum, you know, a couple of lessons here and a couple of lessons there. But in the elective program is where we could really develop these these uh, these skills. And we had the most highly rated at both War College and ACSE for the 10 years I was there. Uh, the elective always was top rated. Uh, it was, I can't, I learned more. This is what everybody at PME should get would be the typical end of course critique. I learned more about leadership in this one, you know, one course than I could ever learn. And we had a blast with it. We really did. We, uh, we developed online courses. Uh, we went TDY a lot, uh, Presidio, Monterey. Uh, Fort Bliss, uh, Special Ops Command down at uh, Hurlbut, uh, up to the Pentagon to do air staff training, uh, where we would train Pentagon folks on how to negotiate. Uh, now, this is not war termination negotiations like, you know, uh, Nordy Schwarzkopf did. That's that's right. not it. It's day-to-day working relationship negotiations to resolve conflict. Uh, there is a, <clears throat> uh, I finally published my book. Uh, negotiation uh, in the military. You can Google it. Uh, it's available online for free, and the Chinese have downloaded about ten thousand copies of it. <laughs> it's a it's a practical guide to international negotiation. Yeah, it, it, that's right. The yeah. practical guide to negotiating in the military. And, and uh, also, the Chinese. You also wrote, you also wrote what's a book that about the Air Force Basic Military Training School in Latin. Yeah, you wrote, you wrote yeah. the book for that too. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, I'm I'm most proud of the, the the practical guide because believe it or not, civilian colleges use it. Yeah, 
it works. You don't have to. You don't have to have a uniform on to make the, what the concepts in that book work. Yeah. And uh, so I've had I had a lot of fun with that. And you know, seriously, the only reason I retired from it is because, you know, my wife Kathy got sick with cancer, and then I lost her in 2018, and with a handicapped daughter, I just needed to be her buddy because she lost her mom, you yeah. know, and I wasn't going to put her all day with somebody who's not her mom or her dad. Going. So yeah. that's why I retired, retired. Well, went into 90% retirement in 2018. So, so Steph, one thing I found that I got a question about is how in the world did you show up as a T-38 pilot photo for sale for 15 bucks? Do you, do you know about this? No, I don't. You need to send me that link. Okay, I'll have to, I'll have to find it. You've got a picture of you. Sta- somebody's got a picture of you standing next to a T-38. It's no longer no longer available for sale. It was for $15.98 on some website. Go, oh, man, that's so cool. <laughs> I, I could pull some F-16 buddies chains with that one. Look, I got I, I What do you want? <laughs> oh, that's too and funny. And then the, I think... Uh, I think the last the last question I had was uh, something to do with Warrior Week. That was a big deal when you were at Lackland. Oh yeah, at BMT. Yeah, well, we were. I mean, we were transitioning to more of an expeditionary uh, mindset, and uh, so the chief of staff comes down through ATC. And I had a great boss at ATC, uh, Fig Newton, uh, former Thunderbird, great four star. I mean, really was, and he he came down. Uh, one day just to, to visit and he said Steph he said uh, we're starting this <clears throat> expeditionary air force uh, mindset and I said yes sir I mean, I've been reading about it yada 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 and I said what can I do for you he said I need you to ch- to change BM he says basic training hasn't changed in 60 years <laughs> we need to get <clears throat> we still need to do what we need to do at basic training but we need to get them more expeditionary skills so they don't go to their first duty station, not knowing how to pitch a GP medium tent, not knowing how to eat an MRE, not knowing how to do self-aid body care, not knowing how to put on a gas mask. You know, all the, the basic stuff that you need to be able to pack your, your mobility bag and get on a C5 and go somewhere. Yeah. And I said, done. And uh, he said, and I'm going to give you no money to do it. <laughs> and to and I, dropped, I dropped the F-bomb again. <laughs> He, he laughed at me. He says, yeah, I heard that about you. And I said, we'll make it happen, sir. And uh, what we ended up doing, you know, the Red Horse team out of Nellis. Oh, my God, those dudes, dudes and dudettes are awesome. Uh, I had my TIs because, you know, I'm the BMT commander, but I'm not a qualified MTI. I am not mission qualified in the primary sortie that basic military training does every day. I'm just the freaking commander. So I got my my chief and my senior master sergeants and about a dozen of my uh, blue rub TIs, the, the, the top of the line guys and gals. And I said, you guys go off and drink a case of beer. This is going to happen. And they all resisted me. So, oh, we don't know. And I said, OK. And I said, every one of you is going to go back out to your career field eventually. You're going to go back out to being a cop, being a, a mechanic, being a uh, this, that or the other. Wouldn't you want an airman to come to you? with the following, and I think I had nine basic skills that the field training would give them. Wouldn't you want them to be able to do that? And you don't waste time out there, you know, as a three or three level airman, don't waste their time doing this stuff instead of getting better at being a mechanic or whatever. 
And they said, yeah. And I said, wouldn't you like to be able to call your buddies out there in the field and say, look at what we're doing for you. So that when you're looking for an assignment back out there in the field, you can go to them. Look, I did this for you, basic training. Help me out you know, with, with an assignment. And they all looked at me and he says, yeah, you're a negotiator, aren't you? <laughs> I said, look, look on the positive side. And they put together a plan. And we contracted with uh, the Red Horse folks and a bunch of other folks. And we self-helped. I mean, uh, I got a bunch. It was probably about, you know, I had 427 TIs. I had a lot. Well, we were pushing 50,000 trainees through a year. But I had a bunch of TIs. And they came out of the woodwork volunteering because a lot of them had deployed before. Mm-hmm. You know, they were part of Desert One. And they said, boy, that would be really cool if I would have known this as an airman. <clears throat> and we built on this, I don't know, it was like 16 or 20 acres behind the hospital, way down the, in, the, in the scrub brush of, of uh, San Antonio. We built this encampment. And uh, I think it t- we took us about eight months to build it. And the funny part was uh, we were going to run two trial classes. And then we were going to run the real class. And we were start putting everybody through basic training. And General Newton comes down. I think the, it was the middle of June, and we prognosticated that the 1st of August or the 1st of September, we're going to be able to put everybody through. You know, that, that's a, just a, a huge throughput issue. It's a logistic issue is what it is. You know, when you have a class of 200 go through there, you know, and then you got three or four weeks to figure out and iron out the problems, and then another 200 to fix, you know, a couple of trial runs, beta tests. And he wanted, you know, you know, you think one July you can start putting through a thousand a week? No, <laughs> <laughs> sir. You can have it now or you can have it right. And he says, damn. I said, seriously, you can have it now. Or you can have it right. And I said, if we don't get it right, somebody might get hurt out there. I said, we're talking about, you know, we're, we're working with all sorts of crazy stuff out there that we've never played with before. He said, I said, is 60 days that important to you? And he said, it kind of is, but I understand your point. And so he, he acquiesced hmm. and we did our trial runs and we found some kinks in our process and we fixed them. And one September we started putting through a thousand a week wow. and they've been doing it ever since. In fact, now it's even a bigger program. It used to be just a week. We call it warrior week. And now it's like 10 or 12 days out of there, out of the, uh, the nine and a half weeks or eight and a half weeks they spend in basic training. So. Well, well, that sounds great. I, I, I sound like you've had quite a successful, like you say, eclectic and unusual uh, career from what you thought you were going to do. Uh, the Air Force. Oh, God, was, was, wasn't even close to what I thought it was going to be. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, look at the, you look at the Air Force commercials, you know, and you go, oh, Chuck Yeager, you know, test pilot, you know, that kind of thing. That's what I want to be. <laughs> no, you're building GP medium tents at basic training. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't sound like you had a bad time ever. Oh, I had a great time. And the, the thing that makes it all worthwhile is, and that's another thing, you, I mean, when you're talking to the grads, you know, everybody's enamored of, with equipment. I don't remember half the equipment that I ran, but I know I remember all the people. And that's what the big difference is. It's the people. My God, the folks I got to work with, yeah. enlisted folks, uh, civilians, contractors, fellow officers, classmates, you know, even Aggies, for God's sakes. You know, I even <laughs> got to work with some great Aggies. All right, man. And I, I had to put that one in because if Neil McKinney, my my favorite Aggie, my, my retired uh, my retired Aggie friend, if he ever hears this, he'll go, yeah, he's talking about me. Well, I thank you for doing this. 
No problem, man. All right. I, I enjoyed I enjoyed reminiscing. I really did. It's a lot of fun. It is. All right. Talk to you, Matt. You take care.